You are welcome to the Nigerian Filmmaker, a podcast about Nigerian filmmakers, their films, and how we can build a diverse and functional industry. I'm your host, Sele God. On this episode, my guest is Oliomi Oshosanya. In this second part, we talk about how Nigerian cinema can transcend its shows, the different classes of the Nigerian audience, and why it's important to add human elements in our stories. If you're a new listener, you're welcome, and I hope you enjoy. You know, in recent times, um, the Nigerian audience have expressed their displeasure with some things that Nigerian filmmakers do. And then, you know, sometimes it's, again, it's this polarizing conversation where, you know, the filmmakers are like, you don't know what we're going through, Um, you know, you don't understand and all that. Do you feel... Um, from the from the filmmaker's point of view, do you feel that they have, do you t- they have a case, or um, you know, there should just be a standard, and you know, it's either you meet the standard or you fall below it. For them, is there is there any excuse for some of the things that have been seen from, like films that have come out lately that haven't been really accepted? Um, this is another nuanced nuanced um. I see answer or conversation. Yeah. So there's validity. There's there is some level of validity because um, environmentally there are some challenges yeah. that are valid. Yeah, some real challenges that are valid environmentally. Mm. There's uh, some a lot of challenges that are valid skills skill set wise. But I love something. Um, I saw recently from Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. And he said, um, cinema cinema is about approach. And cinema is about state of mind of the filmmaker. Yeah. And he said he has seen he has seen um I'm paraphrasing here, seen adverts and he has seen um he has seen th- a lot of things that are more cinematic than actual Oscar winning films. Yeah. He has seen um, things on on internet that are more cinematic than Oscar-winning films. So it's about the state of mind of the filmmaker and the approach, rather than the medium, the format, or the tools they have. Yeah. So um, I'd argue that while there's validity to some of the things that make our films turn out the way they are, there's also people that, using the example of a film like um, currently trending for Maria. Yeah. The film by Dami Dami Romegunje. Sorry, Dami, if I butchered your name. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the budget of that film is, but I know it's not a high budget. Yeah. And comparatively, it's nothing close to a lot of the bigger budget films that were disappointments. Yeah. But if you follow Dami's um, his work over the years in his short films and the, the commissioned work he did for... Um, um, the Naked Convos. I think he did a short film for the Naked Convos. You see, you can see the kind of filmmaker he is. You can see the thought process and the kind of intentionality he puts in his films. Yeah. So despite the fact that he didn't have the budgets, the same kind of budget that a lot of bigger name filmmakers have, you can see what he put on the screen. And despite the narrative that Nigerians only want things that make them laugh, uh. 
if you've been following the trend on social media, on Twitter especially, there are a lot of people that are just, they're just, they connected with film in unbelievable ways. So I believe that, yes, there are a lot of valid logistical reasons that make filmmaking very frustrating yeah. in Nigeria and harder than it has to be. I think intentionality, state of mind and determination play a long role in the eventual outcome. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people that have that have had, had ten times the budget he had, ten times the the ten times the budget he had, much better gear, much longer shooting days. Yeah. But the work they didn't really turn out great. So even with better resources, if there's the state of mind of the filmmaker and the intentionality and the determination don't are not in a certain hierarchy, it's it's not going to matter because even abroad, even in England and in in, in the US, filmmaking is hard. Yeah. Filmmaking is, is incredibly hard. Even when you have a hundred million dollar budget, there's so much pressure. Uh-huh. There's so much expectations. There's so many things that go wrong. There's no Nigerian filmmaker that will ever have to go through what um, Inarito went through shooting The Revenant. Uh-huh. The, the, the weather conditions and the style that he took. There's no Nigerian filmmaker that has gone through what one quarter of one quarter of one quarter of what Coppola experienced on Apocalypse Now. Yeah. His lead actor having having uh, uh, a heart attack and shutting down production for how many weeks? Uh-huh. The the military taking away their helicopters that you're shooting with, the weather conditions, the mosquito conditions, shooting on water, shooting with explosions everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the guy the guy nearly ran mad. Uh-huh. It was way over budget for so long. And the guy was in panic mode because it was looking like the film was a failure, but he eventually pulled it off. Yeah. So their filmmaking is extremely difficult anywhere in the world. Yes, Nigeria has its own unique unique frustrations. But at the end of the day, it's the team you assembled all have to be on the same frequency. Yeah. Everybody on the team, at least or at least your key your key members technically and creatively has to be firing on the same cylinders. So um, it's like somebody that has been shooting, you can't bring somebody that you can't have ambitions to make um, what a, a let me then what will I cite now? You can't have ambitions to make a film you want to take to can. Yeah. Because even if you have a hundred million, hundred, hundred, um, you have five million dollar dollar budget to shoot a film you want to take to can. Yeah. If you gonna hire a DP who has only been shooting Asaba films for the last fifteen years, uh-huh. there's no way you're going to meet that ambition. Yeah. Because his experience doesn't prepare him for that kind of ambition. Mm. And it's not his fault. It's your fault for hiring him. As there's no grammar you want to speak that is going to understand where you're going to when he's used to shooting 20 scenes in one day. Yeah. And you want him to spend three hours lighting a particular scene because of a tone and a mood you're trying to create. So I think that's another factor. There's some, there's sometimes there's the disparity between the skill sets 
and the ambition yeah. or the budget and the ambition and that kind of thing. So um, there are certain approaches we have to things we have to change about our approach to production if we want things to change. I still say there's there's a validity, there's a lot of validity in what um, in, in some of the things you're making say. Yeah. And I've experienced some of those things. I've had I've cut corners in places I didn't want to cut corners. Yeah. Because time was time was running out and there was nothing I could do other than get get the scenes that were required to get. Mm. So there's validity in that. But at the same time, at the end of the day, the audience member, that's not the audience member's business. Yeah. Unless you are either involved directly in the film or you have friends in the industry. As a paying audience member, you don't care. Yeah. All you care about is the final film. And I'm either spending my time in the cinema to watch or I'm spending my data and my time at home to watch. There's um there was this interview with Jackie Chan. Yeah. When he was pointing out um he was talking about said, Oh, when you the film is all you have. At the end of the day, the film is all you have in perpetuity. And you can't go to every single cinema in the country and they tell you, God, oh, we couldn't shoot this scene properly because it was raining that day. Oh, we couldn't shoot this one because the actor was late. Yeah. Oh, we were being chased out of the location. He said, audience doesn't care about that. All they care about is, is the film work for yeah. me or not? Is the film good or not? That you cannot go through every theater explaining why something didn't work or telling them, oh, you can't complain. You don't understand what we went through. Uh-huh. He said, this is this is one of the biggest filmmakers, at uh, least in Hong Kong, he's one of the most successful. He has made some of the best Hong Kong films. And that was his feedback when he was talking to his audience. Yeah. Uh, one of the final questions they asked him. So at some point, we have to realize that the audience is none of the audience's responsibility, especially if we're, we're demanding their time, yeah. we're demanding their, their money. Yeah. They don't care, and it's it's not our it's not their place to care about our experience. We can tell our colleagues, we can tell our friends. Our colleagues will will them sympathize with each other. Ah ah ah! I know this person would have shot better if he had more time. Mm. I know this person. Yeah, yeah. Giving him ten million naira more, this film would have been this that this that this that. But to the audience, it's none of their business. They don't care because as filmmakers and people in the industry. We have a right to complain if we don't get good service at the restaurant. Yeah. We don't care whether the tomato tomato was delayed late and because it was delayed late to sell. Yeah. That's none of our business. When our network, when we pay for internet for a month, we expect those 30 days to serve us 30 days. Yeah, definitely. Whether their tower went down or not, it's not our business. When our banking app is not working and we need to send money to the person. The delivery truck, yeah. bringing uh, the actors' food. No, 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 no. It's not the uh, business because it, somebody coded something wrongly or one server went down. Hmm. So that's why our app is not working. We will come online and we'll complain that this banking, this bank, they're messing up. Oh, this network, they're messing up. Oh, don't go into that restaurant. Yeah. So I think we, we need to look at it from that perspective when the audience come out and complain. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the same way it's not our business. We are paying for a service and we expect the service. We're paying for satisfaction and we expect satisfaction. 
the audience also has a right. Now, I'm not saying the audience should be abusive. I think as Nigerians, we will take, take that a bit too far when we're being critical. Mm. So I'm not justifying um, abuse or disrespect. But the audience, at some point, we have to listen to the audience. We can't keep dismissing them because yeah. we have dismissed complaints for 30 years now. Uh-huh. At some point, we have to realize that, you know what, maybe, maybe these people are valid. Some valid things we need to listen to. Some. Not everything. Yeah. At some point, we need to check ourselves to find out how can we get a different result next time. Okay. And yeah. uh, just make sure we we improve time to time. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, um, what's that one film or TV series that you absolutely love to rewatch? Uh, I will say there's one. Uh, okay. Recently, I've been going over clips of um person of interest. Yeah. Um, community, um, Thirty Rock, um, films. I I watch Back to the Future all the time. Yeah. Um, I watch Snatch, Snatch a lot. The Godfather, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the first film and only the first film. Uh-huh. Uh, which other one? Burn Notice. I love Burn Notice. Yeah. Uh, which other one? Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars was like a favorite show of mine for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, Incredibles. Okay. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Yeah. So with with person of interest, is it that you're you're developing something that is similar? Like, why do you keep um, you know, rewatching some clips? No, no, just. Um, I also think the premise of the show was very telling for our times. Yeah. Um, then the the performance of um, Jim Caviezel and um, I can't remember the other actor's name now. The one that plays uh, Mr. Um, his boss. Yeah. Or his employer. Their their dynamics. For one thing that I really love in TV shows more than the premise itself is the character dynamics. How the how the char- both the characters play each of play off each other and how the actors play off each other. For me, interesting character dynamics usually make me remember a show more than the actual premise or episode or plots. Yeah. So how they bounce off bounce off each other. And yeah, they they're varying um, varying personas and personalities and temperaments play off each other. Yeah. Okay, so um Right now in Nigeria, like for filmmakers, there are very limited options, you know, in terms of distribution for them to exploit the um, the content that they have made. And then there's this trend where there are some films that shouldn't be at the cinema, but because, you know, there's no any other way to make money from this film you have made or there are limited options, you know, people take it to the cinema. What damage is this causing to um, the industry? Um, um, I like to think that when it comes to audiences, generally, but audiences in Nigeria, there are there are three types of people: hmm. they are believers, they are atheists, and they are agnostics. Yeah. Now, for Nigeria, the believers are people that watch almost anything Nollywood because they like. They like the stars. Yeah. Nollywood is their god that they don't they can't relate to foreign films. They are agnostics who are open but skeptical. Yeah. 
Like every every once in a while, if you hear an Hollywood film is good, they'll go and check it out. Yeah. And it is that people that will categorically refuse to watch anything in Hollywood, you could buy you could buy a five course meal for them, buy uh-huh. the tickets and popcorn, and say go for free. It's all on me, and they're like, no, I don't want. To keep your food, keep your popcorn, keep your soda. I'm not interested. Yeah. So what what that does is it converts some of the agnostics to atheists completely. They're like, you know what? I wasted my time watching this film. I'm done with you people. Go away with your Nollywood. Everybody was right about you. Yeah. And a few believers start getting tired because they will take their friends and their friends will say, what nonsense is this? Why did you waste me? And they will look at the money they spent. Some of the people take two or three friends. Mm. Some people will harass a friend. Ah, this one is different. This one is different. This one is different. And by the time the friend comes and gets annoyed, they will start getting skeptical and they will start becoming hesitant to, to, um, to endorse a film or to promote a film. So when a film that shouldn't be in the cinema does go to the cinema, um, often it's it does two things. If it does well financially, it's it reinforces the idea that these are the only type of films people want to watch. Yeah, which is not usually the truth. And if and um, it also um, reinforces to people that were skeptical in the first place that this is the only thing these people can do. This is the only thing they could Hollywood is capable of doing. I'm not interested. People who are lazy, blah, 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 blah. Because I know the kind of things I've heard when I'm standing at the um, at the ticket desk. Yeah. And people are coming to buy tickets and somebody suggests Nollywood films. I hear the kind of jokes people crack. Uh, this thing that you people shot on iPhone. Uh, this thing that people don't know. Uh, this thing you can tell from the beginning, from the end. Mm-hmm. So this is 30, 30 years on and people still have those perceptions. And... Everyone's those those great films that come every once in a while, either people don't hear about them, or people are too skeptical to try and to, to give it a chance. So I think when films that have no shouldn't be in the cinema in the first place make their way there, there's a certain level of damage that they do. A certain level that I think it was even um about two or three years ago, um, um I think it was with Dominic mention something about not every film has to go to the cinema. Yeah. And instead of it's creating a conversation, people go angry. Industry people go angry with her. She said not every film needs to go to the cinema. I think she was, might have even been referring to one of her own films that she didn't expect to be a cinema release. Yeah. And people go angry instead of discussing. So even if, if someone at that level can say this and instead of discussing, people are, are throwing around insults and getting angry. That's, that shows that we have a while to go in, in actually sitting down and discussing, okay, how do we solve these certain challenges ahead of us? How yeah. do we resolve the, uh, the level of negativity that people have about our films? Because uh. I know people that watch, in a week, they might see like five films in the cinema and none of them is an Hollywood film. So imagine if somebody like that that spends that much time and that much money in the cinema suddenly starts liking Hollywood films. Yeah. What that would do in the broad spectrum if there are like 50 or 60 or 70 of those kind of people every week. Yeah. So um, 
it's it's some of those um, producers have no other option to recover their money, mm. and it's unfortunate that it has come it has come to that that we didn't build the systems that give them options outside of a theatrical release. Yeah, that we didn't tackle the um, the piracy problem twenty five years ago, where where before it grew it grew to the the monster that it is now. There's a there's a saying by um. I don't know what, whether it's his original saying, but Tony Robbins says, kill kill the monster while it's a baby before it turns into Godzilla destroying the city. Yeah. So piracy became the Godzilla that destroyed distribution, leaving the cinema as the only option for most filmmakers. Uh. And even abroad, not, not everything is theatrically released. There are films that go straight to DVD, either intentionally or because they couldn't find distribution. Yeah. And they, they they eventually found their market. There are films that there are fantastic films that failed at the cinema, but by the time they got to a VHS release or a DVD release, they become phenomenal. That happened with Fight Club. That happened with um, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that our DVD market was eaten up by piracy and all that kind of stuff. But um, going forward, we have to make sure that okay, we fight things where they are. They are I fight destructive things at their baby level. Yeah. I'm not using the word baby. They are tiny level before it turns into something completely out of control for everybody. Mm. Okay. Um, so, so far throughout your career, what would you say has been your happiest Nollywood moment? So, something positive that happened to you or like a positive um, event in the industry that was your happiest? Uh, <laughs> uh, this might seem a little bit of cheating, but let me let me let me let me let me piggyback off Dami. I'm really really happy about the reception his film is making is getting yeah. right now. I'm fantastically happy that the kind of reception because for years the narrative has been that Nigerians don't watch certain types of films yeah certain types of films and certain types of filmmaking are too slow or too boring or too dark or too depressing for nigerians to have any sort of interest uh. in them and i don't know if you've seen the film for maria um, but yeah. it explores post postpartum depression and it doesn't make it an easy watch yeah it doesn't cheat it doesn't give you escape rooms to wiggle out of the of the top Talk of it, but it's it's, a, it's an incredibly engaging film. Yeah, and if you see the feedback online and how other people that never heard about it before, never heard about postpartum depression, people that have know somebody that experienced it or somebody that I don't think I saw a tweet that the woman that said she experienced it like thirty years ago huh. postpartum depression, and she's this is the first time she's ever seen any Nigerian filmmaker talk about this topic. So I'm I'm incredibly happy that this is showing that there's an audience for this type of film yeah because filmmakers that wanted to tell this type of stories have been told nigerians will not watch this nigerians are not interested in this this will not sell now maybe there's a factor because it's on netflix not in cinema i'm sure that plays that plays uh, a role to, in in um, the reception but it shows that there is there's room for this type of storytelling. 
Not every filmmaker can pull this off, and not everybody needs to pull this off. The story is what's hooked them, yeah. and the the acting is 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 a is the bonus. But the storytelling through the bodies of the actors and through the the lens of the director and his choices and how he sometimes isolates the actor through his shots and lets something play off screen. Uh-huh. And that type of storytelling that is not just generic short reverse shots or two shots, one shot, white shots, next scene. He doesn't do that. So even those who do not study film craft or cannot articulate why the way a scene was shot give them a different experience but with conversations continuing and mm. being able to actually discuss the form of a film rather than oh I liked it it was funny uh, oh this person is my favorite actor it wasn't a, a it wasn't a star driven film yeah and it wasn't even a director driven film because most people, I don't think anybody outside of the industry heard about Dami before then. Even within the industry, a lot of people don't know Dami, except yeah. you're, you're, the, you're a cinephile or a, a film nerd that pays attention to everything that comes out. But the fact that a film by a director that is not a name, so to speak, without the A-list stars, is that have been trending for about nine days now, 10 days now, mm. have created discussions that's just two years ago. Yeah. You know, people would tell you it was impossible. Mm. That makes me very, very happy, incredibly happy. And I'm just hoping that the likes of Netflix and Amazon are paying attention to a filmmaker, a filmmaker like him yeah. and open up the possibilities of filmmakers who are trying to tell different type of stories in different type of genres with different type of moods and tones yeah. that are not the regular thing that will play in the cinema and make a lot of money. There's yeah. a room for that. Yeah. Just like there's room for, um, let me, I keep using American examples, but there's, there's, let's just say, there's room for the MCU in America. There's also room for A24, type yeah. of films A24 makes. Now, people that watch the MCU do not have to watch E24. Yeah. So I hope filmmakers like him telling those type of indie type of storytelling that are not star-driven yeah. get more opportunities to to get get opportunities based on the merit of storytelling, mm. not necessarily on the merit of which popular name is attached to the film. Yeah. And that this um, audience member but can now start looking out for films based on storytelling, not on, oh, my favorite actor is in it. Oh, this popular person is in it, or this popular person is attached to it. So for all the things that happened in the last, I say, 10 years, this is one of the things that makes me most happy. Okay. I mean, so I've cheated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, you know, in, in America, um, it was first cinemas that came, then the technology for televisions came after that, and there was this competition between cinema and um, TV. But, um, you know, as things went on, yeah. cinemas were able to still kind of keep um, their audiences because they always tended to tell stories in a grander and 
more cinematic way. Um, you know, these days the lines are getting blurred. That's in in America, and you know, um, it's very hard to differentiate between TV and film. Maybe it might just be that one is episodic and the other one is um, standalone. So for Nigeria, do you do you are you seeing some you know indicators or trends that were moving in this direction? with our like tv content and film content i'm going to give you my, sh my shortest answer no <laughs> why do you think um that is the case it goes back to what i said early, early what i said a little bit earlier yeah we've never had uh, 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 a cinema history or cinema culture so to speak yeah most people watching films today in Nollywood have no memory of the filmmakers from the 70s and the 80s. No memory, no working memory. At least most people under 40 don't have no working memory. So we're calculating from 1991, 1992. So we don't have a cinema culture. Uh -huh. There was a cinema culture where cinema was, um, was, was the thing that TV could not give you. Yeah. Cinema was something TV could not give you. And by the time TV started becoming on, even when TV, when TV initially started appearing in American homes, the filmmakers were forced to do something that TV could not give you. Those dimensions of the TV screen yeah. could not give them. So whether it was the technology, the, act, the actual technology, they explained like um, there was something called Cinema, yeah. cinema, uh, cinema Scope, yeah. there was Cinevision, there was Vistascope. They were, just, they were making bigger screens and bigger experiences. They, they introduced 3D. They introduced them um, smellow vision. Yeah. They were constantly trying to evolve the medium to to pull audiences out of their homes to come to the cinema because you cannot get this thing at home. Yeah. Nollywood was for at least 20 years TV. Uh. TV and TV alone. So there was never that competition, and for the larger part, at least a large majority of the the, the way um, Nordic films are shot and edited have not really changed since we started going theatrical for majority of films. Yeah, there's very little difference in how it's shot, even how it's scheduled. The production, the production time they give themselves to shoot is still mostly a TV schedule. Uh. Just that is a 90 minutes is a feature, not a, a series. There's really little difference between how TV, TV shows in Nigeria are scheduled, like a 10-episode or 12-episode TV show is scheduled, and have a feature film scheduled. TV, with TV, you have to get a certain number of scenes per day, let's say 12 scenes, yeah. 18 scenes per day. And you're working with maybe two or three directors, so everything has to be uniform. With film, it's not like that. That's, and it should not meant to be like that with TV. Let's say like a sitcom, you're, you're working with flat lighting. The lighting doesn't change. The sets don't change. So by the time two or three directors have come through, everybody has to shoot something uniform and the directors are not involved in the edits. Yeah. Shoot what they something they submitted. It's between the post-production post supervisor and the producer. With film, the director meant to be involved in the editing intimately involved in editing because it's he or hers, his or her vision. Yeah. 
from what I heard, a lot of times directors not involved in the editing of feature films in Nigeria, uh, depending on their level. Yeah. Depending on their level, a lot of them are not involved. Maybe we've got the top five or the top ten, they are involved. The rest of the people, they submit it and they move on to their next shoot. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of, even if a lot of fans cannot even tell, can't really articulate it, but even abroad, there's a difference between a TV movie and a feature film, a yeah. theatrical movie. In Nigeria, there's never really been that distinction between a TV movie and a theatrical movie. How a TV movie is written, the act structure, the 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 way it's the cinematography, yeah. the, the even the uh, the performances to an extent, and the story, the kind of story. Um, using foreign examples now. There's a difference between a theatrical feature film and what you expect to watch on the Hallmark channel or what you expect to watch on the Lifetime channel yeah. or what you expect to watch on um, any of those made-for-TV made movies. There's a difference between a Christmas movie made for cinema, let's say Home Alone, huh. or um, It's a Wonderful Life versus the Christmas movie that Hallmark makes in-house. So we've never really had that distinction between TV movie, film movie, TV show, film show, TV directing, film directing. Everything has solidly, solidly sort of just meshed into one indistinguishable thing. Yeah. So the cinematography of a TV show almost the same with the cinematography of uh, a movie that is meant to be theatrically distributed. So it's not even shot or edited or scored in a way that's okay when you leave your house you're getting this distinct experience versus if this was made for something at home yeah so there's never been a distinction the americans have always known the distinction because you can track when it's significantly changed in america yeah it started changing with the sopranos when the sopranos came out David Chase said that he wanted to make something cinematic. So that was an intentional thing. Uh. When the TV producer and the TV writer sits down and says, you know what, I want my show to look like a film. I want every episode to look like a film. So it wasn't coincidental. Yeah. They sat down and they decided. So that was the beginning of the era of what they call prestige TV. So, um, um, Breaking Bad, uh, Game of Thrones, and uh, Mad Men. So after HBO started, it's AMC. Yeah. You guys have made Breaking Bad, and I think Mad Men also jumped on that, making prestige TV. Yeah. And Netflix fell by the way when they started with House of Cards. House of Cards was prestige TV before the competition started nipping on their heads, and they just dropped their, their standards, as far mm. as I'm concerned. But House of Cards was prestige TV. House of Cards was cinematic and David Fincher directing the pilot episode and producing it, set out for it to look different from television. Although it was delivered in the medium of television, yeah. but it was set out to be different from network TV. So basically network TV is different from cable, different from prestige TV. Huh. And even network TV to extent, like peri- um, procedurals, the um the law and orders, the NCIS, the CSIs. Yeah. That was standard TV. 
but even them within the limits of their production schedule, some of them started trying to adapt cinema techniques to to their something. So we have never had that distinction. The audience has never really asked for it. Mm. And to some extent, a lot of active filmmakers do not even know there's a difference, <laughs> to be to, to be honest, like a 100. No, people don't know there's a, there's a difference between um, something being cinematic and something that's been um, like a TV, an episode of the TV that is shot for, that is that is um, broadcast on uh, in the in the cinema. Yeah. And the audience doesn't really care for the distinction. So if the audience isn't, there's this thing, um, Paul Schrader. Paul Schrader said a few years ago, said them. Um, they were commenting on, on the quality of films in America. And um, they were asked why 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 was the 70s able to produce such distinct films and such distinct filmmakers? And he said it was the demand of the audience yeah. because there was a lot of things going on in the world and a lot of the conflicts America was involved in um, economically and politically and war-wise. I think they were, they were still in Nam. Yeah. Or just coming out of now at that time. So a lot of people walk looked to films to get look to artists and put it that way, to, to to get answers. And that's why we were able to produce the likes of um Apocalypse Now and um Taxi Driver. Because the the cut and dried, glossy, happy, happy films that were being made prior to the early 70s just didn't do it for audiences anymore. So that's why those guys were able to tell grounded stories that were about people on the streets, not the um, the Bel Air and the LA lifestyles and the squeaky clean Hollywood something. Yeah. Even though the noir noir films had existed prior prior to that. Well that's starting with um I think the Easy Rider and um Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. There was a there was a shift because audiences accepted those the younger people that were now getting disposable income started paying for those films and started uh-huh. demanding more of those films. And of course, the studios jumped jumped on it when they saw. And that was also the period that a lot of young people were coming out of film school, like the first first set of film people that didn't learn on the job who actually yeah. went to school. So that's when they were graduating and they started getting opportunities is making films so the audience made the demands with their pockets for those distinct type of films the filmmakers in what's um in, in a glad in a gladwellian um, twist of uh, of fits yeah malcolm gladwell with outliers that they were born at the right time and were born at the the, the right time and they were born at the right opportunity seem to come together yeah. for for the film school brats and the period in Hollywood's change, and also the period in America's cycle, where those three themes came together, mm. forced a distinctive change. And to some to some extent, it repeated itself in the 90s, when um, Tarantino and Soderbergh and Fincher and both both Andersons, Wes Anderson and P.T. Anderson were emerging yeah. in those early 90s. That was like the last I see great film era or emergence of a, 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 a um, decade yeah. where great films were just milestone filmmakers and milestone films were emerging. 
all at the same time in the period of a decade, the 70s and the 90s. It really hasn't happened much since then, at least um, hasn't really happened much since then. So um, when audiences demand better and filmmakers demand better of themselves and don't um, don't just rely on, okay, my film made this amount of money, so therefore I'm already doing everything right. The trick, the trick with that is audiences have already paid for their tickets yeah. out of curiosity of something. So the box office is a measure of how many people paid, not necessarily how many people enjoy. Because there are people that walk out of movies all the time. Uh. There are people that finish the movie and they are pissed that they spend their money. So if we use only, oh, I sold this number of tickets as the sole measuring metrics and we reject any unpleasant feedback. We don't, we don't really get the full picture. We look at, um, look at uh, what most people will call the worst Transformers film. I was on my Transformers Age of Extinction, yeah. I think. I made over a billion dollars. And it's not even the best. It's not the best Michael Bay film. Yeah. It's not the best Transformers film. But people are fans, the same people that went to watch it have called it one of the worst Transformers films. So are we going to measure base career or the quality of the film based on that film and that maybe based on its box office? No, we can't. Because people watch it out of curiosity or expectations. Huh. So what's the, the the amount of money it made is not necessarily a reflection of the quality of the film. And I once again I, I've forgotten what the initial question was. No, it, yeah, it, you, you did justice to it. Um, so, you know, um, we've talked about the nuances with Nigerian audiences, with Nigerian filmmakers, with the work we do and all that. Um, for the industry to, you know, keep building on the progress that made in the past few years, what do you think should be our like one point of priority for improvement mm. we need to invest more in i say storytelling okay. in the sense that if you talk to any active screenwriter in hollywood you are probably writing six seven eight feature films in a year if not more yeah and sometimes they're given a one month one month deadline from commissioning to delivery. Yeah. So there's, I don't care how fantastic you are a filmmaker or a screenwriter, if you've not actually done the story work prior to that commissioning, if you've not done your your heavy lifting, there's no way you can produce a top-notch quality screenplay that is coherent, free of cliches, free of troops, uh. free of, um, on the nose dialogue in that period of time, unless you have previously done the heavy lifting. Yeah. But if you're commissioned on the 1st of January, it's the first time you're hearing about or thinking about the story, and you're meant to deliver by the 30th. You deliver by the 30th, they go into production on the 15th or the 7th, or even the 2nd of, I've heard of cases, cases where two or three days after delivery, they're jumped into production. Oh. Um, that is not a way to tell tell coherent stories that would have a long shelf life. 
we need to start thinking of uh, films having a long shelf life. Yeah. The, God, the Godfather, I think this year is his 50th, 50th anniversary. And it's being re-released in some in some select cinemas. It's being re-released in some in some um, ancillary forms. Yeah, a fifty-year-old film. How many of our films would we be able to see in fifty years? People will still care to watch, to pay to watch, not just catch it for free on TV. As in, pay to watch. Say this film is being re-released. Yeah, I'm going to pay money to go into the cinema or wherever the theatrical house. So we need to invest in storytelling. We need to give screenwriters. Better training, one, especially for the emerging screenwriters. Yeah. Better training in in writing. Better workshops, not a one week bootshop or a one one month bootcamp. Uh-huh. As in proper time, invest in writing, invest in storytelling. There's a reason um, foreign foreign universities have entire degrees in screenwriting. Yeah three-year, four-year degrees, master's degrees, but somehow we've got anything to our heads that it's, it's natural talent. As long as you know how to write in English or you passed, you got an A in English, anybody can write. That Anybody can write. Um, belief system has done an incredible amount of damage to storytelling in the industry, which is why 30 years on, people still laugh at us and say our stories are predictable. You can tell what's going to happen. Yeah. the beginning of the frame because storytellers are not giving enough time to write to properly sit down and develop the story develop the characters do the first pass do a second pass do a third pass before it actually goes into production so we need to put some more money into storytelling yeah and if have have more time be patient enough to let the story gets to a place where it's properly cooked. Yeah. Before a single before you even start thinking of pre-production. So um that's that's a huge factor. And if if you look at in in the nineties, at least in the let's say in the mid nineties, Nollywood was in a much better and stronger place than the music industry. Yeah. When I was in in secondary school, and even university to an extent, people did not really listen to Nigerian music. Nigerian music was not really that popular on radio. Yeah. Every once in a while, you listen to a tribesman or a plantation boys or a remedies, but they were fringe. It was the fringe thing. It was very rare. 90% of your CDs or your mixtapes will be American music. But now, the, the music industry examine themselves and they made a significant change to the point is you can exclusively play Nigerian music on the radio now. You can exclusively play Nigerian music in the clubs. You can exclusively play Nigerian music in the parties. Yeah. To the point that Nigerian music is now on American radio and British radio. To the point that Nigerian artists are selling out the O2 arena. Huh. According to calculations, um, I think the concerts Wizkid had late last year was made over a billion naira. Oh. When he calculates from the, the pound to, to, to naira equivalent, over a billion naira. One concert, one. That's not his, his total earnings for the entire year. That's yeah. one, I think like a two-day concert or something. 
how much money are the top 50, the top 50 highest grossing Hollywood films since 2010? It's up to a $2 million or $3 million start. So if an individual can be selling out a foreign stadium, if an individual, they are, they are collaborating with the A-list stars in America and in England, yeah. with the Ed Sheerans, with the Drakes, with the Beyonces. They're not collaborating with husbands or B-listers or D-listers. They're collaborating with A-listers. So we need to start projecting ourselves to the point that um, an Oprah or a Barry Jenkins or a Brad Pitt can see the work of a Nigerian filmmaker. Like, this person is strong to it. Like, I want to produce this person's next film. Yeah. Get me in touch. Tell the, call the agent and say, find out who this person is in Nigeria. I saw his last film. I saw her last film. I want to talk to them. Because Brad Pitt, the reason I mentioned Brad Pitt is, if you look at his the films that his production company has produced, Plan B. Uh. As an individual, I think Brad Pitt has produced more films for black filmmakers than most other black producers, yeah. like Oprah and uh, the rest of them. Last man, I think Last Man in San Francisco. I think there are a lot of films that black filmmakers independent filmmakers he has given their first or their second chance. Yeah. That's why I mentioned his name specifically. So there's nothing that says that somebody sitting in Hollywood, someone sitting in England cannot see a Nigerian film on Netflix and like, hmm, this person is really a strong storyteller. Yeah. I wonder what he would do with $2 million budget if this is what he could do for 50000 I wonder what she, she, she could do if I provide her full studio, uh, if I provide a full production suite and give her a truck of $100,000 equipment, yeah. what would she do if she could do this with $20,000 budget? So I want us to start thinking in that direction. I want us to be able to say, my film is for anybody anywhere in the world can watch my film and relate to it and not be dependent on the popularity of who you're casting in the film to sell the film. Yeah. When the film itself doesn't really have a story, a strong story or a coherent story. Because stars lose their power. If your star, that star that you, you're using to sell your film suddenly has a scandal and everybody decides to cancel that person, what happens to your film? After, after I had to shelf that film, by the time everybody, all the networks start pulling pulling it because they don't want the, the rage of the mob coming to their network. Why yeah. is you streaming the film of this molester? And stars actually fall out of evil. So not even even if they don't fall out of evil, they fall out of popularity. So if you're if you're you cast the somebody that's popular in 2020, yeah, what's to say that anybody in 2030 will care about this person if this the film itself does not have a strong story which carries which is aided by the presence of that person rather than the presence of that person being the 80% of the selling point yeah so we need to tell, we need to be more story based I know we live in a I'm not trying to throw the industry under the bus because Hollywood still does that to an extent and they have probably moved more towards that 
than than in previous years. But they've had a hundred years of they have, they have such a, a huge backlog of storytelling, and they still have a a, a subset of story-based filmmakers. We have not gotten there yet, at least when we're trying to grow an international audience. Yeah. And also the local audience was too skeptical. So we need to become more story-strong story and story-strong in a, in a way that someone who does not recognize the faces of your actors will look at the, the premise of your film and like, okay, see what these people want to see. Oh. And the storytelling is so strong, the human element of the story is so strong that it pulls them in and they decide, you know what, I want to do, I want to see everything this filmmaker makes next. I want to go back and see what he or she made previously and stream that and pay yeah. for it. And I'm going to book, bookmark this person something and make sure I'm keeping track of them entire career. In fact, yeah. let me go look for this person on Instagram or on, on Twitter to, to follow him and make sure I know when her next film or his next film is coming out yeah. or the next production or what he's planning on writing. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the dream of any filmmaker. For somebody with money to say, what are you doing next? What's in your next plan? I'd like to work with him. And the more we open ourselves up to that and let's go of a certain level of pride and ego of, oh, my film is selling at home. So therefore, I don't need Oibo. Because yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that I don't yeah. need Oibo film. I uh -huh. don't need Oibo to like my film. The funny thing is, some people are still saying this thing about Fabacas four years, three, earlier, four, three years ago. Some of the ones now scrambling to impress Amazon and impress Netflix. Yeah. But at the time, at the time they said it because they felt that, uh, Nothing, nothing. But here we are now. So if we want to, if the ambition is money, then a larger audience should be considered. A larger audience opening itself up to Europeans watching your film yeah. and Asians watching your film. Because if we are watching South Korean films, if K-drama is becoming so popular around amongst Nigerians, I see no reason why we can't make films or we don't want to make films that a somebody that watches a, a, a Korean can decide, like, you know what, let me watch this thing. A Korean that loves film can say, you know what, I want to see what somebody from this continent does. And it happens to be a film that they, they land on, yeah. decide to explore. So um, I'm going on and on and on again. But uh -huh. um, I think that global ambition even if you only end up distributing your film locally. Yeah. I think every filmmaker should still think globally. Yeah. Because um, look at um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, and this is the recent release of, um, is it The Tragedy of Macbeth? I forget the title. Yeah, I think that the Coen brothers, or the Coen brother did with um, Denzel. That's a story that's almost 300 years old. Yeah. But, um, so many, but because it's a, at, at its core, it's a human story. That's why filmmakers for so many different continents uh, have made that same story. Um, Akira Kurosawa made his own called Throne of Blood. Same story. Right? Uh. A, Japanese, a Japanese man looked at the play of an English 
English playwrights and decided I have to tell the story. Because at its core, it's a human story. Yeah. Everybody that watches it, people that watch it relates to the humanity of it, regardless of the skin color of, of, of the actors or the language of delivery. Once that human element it is, is there, somebody who isn't prejudiced or who hasn't closed off their mind will be able to connect to it, which is coming back to for Maria. People are not used to that type of storytelling. Huh. But human element in the way the, the director un, unveiled through his um, choices of, of framing and composition and color and mood through the performances of Meg Otsangwa and Gabriel Afolaya, even yeah. in their silent moments. People who normally don't watch this type of storytelling, by the time their friends said, go and watch this, and they watched it, they're like, wow, wow, wow. I felt her pain. I felt his frustration. I hope I never go through this. Is this what women are going through? Or is this what women experience? Oh, I'm, also, I'm going to be more empathetic from now Yeah. From now on. Uh, so, once again, I've forgotten your question, but <laughs> <laughs> human elements yeah. is something we should focus on. Yeah. The human element. Star power has its role to play. Uh. Nobody's denying that. But at the end of the day, star power without a human element, yeah, you can make something passable that people would eat their popcorn, enjoy it, and forget about it. But if you want to make something that transcends, now not everybody needs to make something that transcends. Not everybody wants to make something that transcends. Yeah. But I think we need to get into that level of something that transcends time, uh. transcends culture, transcends language. So uh, I think going forward, that should be at the back of the mind of most people. Yeah. If, if we're truly going to um, tap into the potential that is in Hollywood, uh. or at least Nigerian, Nigerian filmmaking, yeah. storytelling from Africa and storytelling from Nigeria has so much potential. Yeah. So much, so, 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 so much. That's why we're barely scratching the surface. Huh. And we need to recalibrate our thinking and our attitude and our approach. If we're fully going to, I was going to say gold mine, but gold is not what it was again. So the crypto mine yeah. <laughs> of storytelling, yeah. which is the future, the future mine, the future crypto mine of Nollywood storytelling and Nigerian storytelling. Huh. We need to just adjust a lot of things about how we choose to approach this form yeah. and think about it. Yeah. Thanks for your very elaborate answer. Mm. Yeah. I long, long, long answers. <laughs> yeah. So, um, are you working on any film? Are you writing at the moment? Uh, well, I'm actually writing some non-fiction stuff. Okay. So, um, had nothing to do with not, nothing to do with film. Yeah, some okay. of my other I'm exploring some of my other interests. Yeah. That, um, yeah, yeah, developing some things here and there. Okay. Some things that are different different stages of development. Yeah. And exploration. Okay. So, um, do you have a website? Do you have social media? How can people keep up with your thoughts with the work you're doing? Oh uh, well, on Website is olodescribe.com. Okay. Instagram is olodescribe. Twitter is olodescribe. O-L-U-D-A-S-C-R-I-B-E. 
That's O L U D A S C R I B E. So Instagram, Twitter, and um, website. Oh, okay. Thanks, Olu, for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Glad to be here. We have come to the end of this episode. Remember to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Selegal Film and the podcast at the Niger Film Pod to share your feedback. You can now support the podcast by visiting the website to donate. See you on the next episode. Have a good one.